there's no way that we can possibly please you without your help. Everything that we do is before you. And you see us for what we are. You see us in ways that we simply can't see ourselves. And I'd like to ask that you'd help us today to see one another more clearly, to see ourselves more clearly, to see people more like you see people. We need your help in this, for our vision is blurry, and that which we think we care to see sometimes is skewed ever so slightly, sullying that which is true and beautiful and good. So help us to see rightly today by not only your divine power, but your divine grace that you would condescend to come to us to make our wrongs right. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been talking to you about the concept of covenant, and especially not just the idea of making agreements and keeping contracts, but I've been talking with you about the idea of the new covenant in Christ's blood. Covenant is a concept I've explained in the previous two sermons, and so I'll point you to listen to that if you'd like. I'm not going to explain the concept of covenant historically and biblically again, except for just to review and say that the new covenant in Christ's blood is not a new concept. It's the completion of a great covenant concept that's as old as the figures in Genesis, is as real as the patriarchs of Israel, and is more assured than any man that has ever walked the earth because it is assured in one man, the perfect man, Jesus Christ. So we have a new covenant in Christ's blood that we remember every time we gather around the table of the Lord and take the Lord's Supper together, which we're eager to do sooner rather than later. We hope that we're able to do the Lord's Supper sooner rather than later. We look forward to that. I want to investigate today from God's Word how matters, how the covenant affects matters of conscience. Matters of conscience. And maybe you don't know what a conscience is, so I'll just give you a brief working definition. A conscience is your internal guide to what is right and wrong. A co- your conscience is your internal guide to what is right and wrong. So how do you know what is right and wrong? Well, in some sense, your conscience should inform you what is right and wrong. It's your internal guide to what is right and wrong. Now, there's more to say, and we will, but there's certainly not less. Your conscience is your internal guide to what is right and wrong. And, and you should mind your own conscience, but your conscience is not simply yours to mind. We're going to get into that as we go through this message. There are two phrases common in our culture that I think might help you imagine the text we're about to read in its context. The first phrase is, I don't care what anyone else thinks. And the second one is, let your conscience be your guide. Or we might reverse the order. Hey, just let your conscience be your guide. And the second one would be, I don't care what anyone else thinks. I'm going to do what I want. Now, those are very common philosophical phrases for life in our culture, aren't they? You hear them from time to time. If someone asks you a tough question, you'll say to them, well, let your conscience be your guide. Let your conscience guide you. Okay? The other phrase I'm kind of playing with this, this morning, after let your conscience be your guide, is, well, I don't care what other people think. I'm going to do what I want. I don't care what other people think. And I guess there's an element of truth to both of them, right? I mean, you do need to have a conscience, that helps you, you do have a conscience, it needs to help you make a decision, and 
There is a sense in which you ultimately have to live with the decisions that you make, and you will stand before God for those decisions. And so therefore, because of that, you really do have to do what you believe is right, regardless of what other people say at some level. But I want you to reimagine those statements, especially when they're said tritely, when they're said kind of in, in the moment of passion. I want you to reexamine if those philosophies are really in line with Scripture and how far they can be pressed. That is, um, hey, just mind your own conscience, all by your lonesome. And then secondly, the idea of I'm just going to do what I want when I want to. And that's actually going to frame our points today from the text. The first one is going to be considering expressing your conscience based on what you know. Based on what you know. So, so just mind your conscience. Let your conscience be your guide. So the first that we're going to look at today is expressing your conscience based on what you know. The second thing we're going to look at is expressing your conscience based on who you know. Who all you're knowing. And the, the third one, that, that one would have to do, of course, maybe your decision making is not just yours alone. There should be other people involved in it. You should care what some people think. The third point today we're going to see is that you should do all matters of conscience based on whom you are known by. Whom you are known by. So, calibrate your conscience, number one, based on what you know or what you're knowing, what you're learning to know, particularly from the Word of God we're going to see. Express your conscience based on who all you're knowing, your brothers and sisters. And then thirdly, do matters of conscience based on whom you are known by, whom you are known by. So those will be our three points. I believe you'll find joy in placing your brothers' and sisters' interests above your personal preferences and appetites. And joy comes when those that are prone to judgmental legalism, as well as those who are prone to arrogant libertinism, come together at the table of the Lord. That is a mouthful of stuff to try to get through today. It's all centered around one word, the conscience. Let's read the text and see how it comes to us in those three ways. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. We'll read them straightway. We're also going to read chapter 10, verses 23 to 33. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we all exist, and through, through whom are all things and through whom we all exist. Verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former associations with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in, the idol's in an idol's temple, will he, not be will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Verse 11. And so by your conscience this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. 
Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, turning over past chapter 9, halfway through chapter 10, where he's talked about becoming all things to all people, that by some means he might win some, giving up his rights to preach the gospel, giving up his own personal rights in order to preach the gospel. He's giving warnings against idolatry, a right framing of the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. And then he comes to the, the end of chapter 10, as we have it, verse 23, and it picks up on this theme of conscience again. In fact, conscience is mentioned eight times in these two sections I'm going to read. Verse 23 of chapter 10. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. You may, your, your translation may say, uh, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. That would be fair as well. All, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all, all things build up. Build up. Construction term we've talked a lot about in Corinthians. Verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Okay. Verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. On the ground of conscience. Remember, that's your internal sense of what's right and wrong. But, verse 28, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that, for which I give thanks? Thanks. Verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage but that of many, that they may be, see that word? Saved. That they may be saved. That's going to really inform our last point in this message. But straightway, I told you to kind of think of our first point about calibrating your conscience based on what you know or what you're knowing. I told you to think of it as, uh, if you're going to mind your own conscience, if I'm going to tell you, hey, let your conscience be your guide, is that really a good philosophy for your life? Well, I guess it really depends on if your conscience is rightly informed. What we find in our lives is that our consciences can be more informed by worldly wisdom than by divine wisdom. And they're not evidently the same thing. Now, how would your conscience be informed by godly wisdom? Anybody want to take a stab at it? If this were a dialogue, you would probably say the Sunday school answer, Jesus, which is a good answer. But how do we know what Jesus wants to tell our consciences? We have to rightly understand, rightly interpret, and rightly apply after having studied what? Studied the words of our Lord from the Bible. Soren Kierkegaard said it like this. The Bible is easy to un enough to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Isn't it true? That's a little bit of a direct way of saying it, but isn't Kierkegaard right? A friend posted that this week. 
so helpful. Isn't he right that one of the reasons we step back about seven-eighths of the way to understanding the Bible is once we admit we understand it rightly, how then shall we live? In open rebellion against the God that's told us something? Or in obedience to the God that has graciously told us something? See, it's an issue of pride, isn't it? It's an issue of arrogance. That's what the Bible talks about in Corinthians particularly, is the Corinthian people are over and over accused of being arrogant, arrogant, arrogant. Now, certainly times we don't understand something, but when we do understand it, or when we're just needing to grind it out just enough to grasp it, maybe ask a question of someone that's further along than us in the faith so that we can understand, and we have a dereliction of duty toward that, that's sometimes, the under, what's underwriting that sometimes, perhaps oftentimes, is we really don't want to be faced with being obliged to act accordingly with what the Word of God says. I'm so pleased here many of you are getting over that hurdle. And I hope today that this sermon will be an installment in getting over that hurdle because your conscience needs to be informed, however difficult it may be, on the Word of God. You need to be informed divinely and not just by worldly wisdom. It's important to know things, to, to learn things, because your conscience needs to be calibrated based on not just what you've known very, very early on in your Christian life, but what you're coming to know. The last time that I, I checked, it's important that you think not that you've arrived already in your Christian development. The destination of your spiritual growth is heaven, is it not? And so because of that very important doctrine, you haven't arrived in knowing. And so don't act like it. It's so very important that we are humble and open to what the Word of God has to teach us afresh and new. That doesn't mean we're as pliable as silly putty. I don't mean we don't have any convictions. Some of us need this message today. Your conscience can't be informed by the Word of God because everything that the Word of God had to teach you was administered to you 30 years ago. So how in the world are you going to learn anything new? That's the pride and arrogance of thinking that, well, I've pretty much got it. You can give me a little pep talk, but it can't shape how I live. If that is your perspective with the Word of God, I don't know how much I'd trust my conscience. Your conscience needs to be shaped every single week by the Word of God. Every day, for that matter. But the, the Lord's Day is where we make that down payment, that installment, that reminder. I was talking to some dear friends this week, and we are talking about sermons. And this dear brother remembered last week's sermon, told me a little bit about it. I was so impressed. I thought, oh my goodness, he remembered the sermon. Because I never do. I mean, I don't remember sermons I listened to like three months ago on the, on the radio. And I can tell you, I don't even remember what I preached four weeks ago. I have to look at my notes. I mean, I don't remember that well. Maybe you don't either. And so you might be tempted to think, well, what's the point? And the way I explained it to him as we were talking about this, something I learned a while ago, is that it's, it, that's not a problem. It's kind of parallel with eating meals. You might not remember what you ate three months ago, but judging from the looks of things, I'm pretty sure you ate. That's what sermons are. They're food for your soul. You won't always remember the exact food groups that were on your plate. But it shaped, it became a part of you, it became amalgamated into you, as such your conscience was shaped by the Word of God. Don't you see? You say, well, I don't need a sermon because I don't remember. Well, I think that's pretty short-sighted. If, if your conscience is going to be your guide, you need to feed that thing some good spiritual food, don't you? You haven't arrived in knowing 
Uh, chapter 8 in this that we're reading in 1 Corinthians, verse 7 says, uh, not all possess this knowledge, this, this knowledge of what's going on with creation, fall, redemption, consummation, what's going on with the storyline of the Bible, what's going on with where we come from, where we're going, what's going on with regard to the fact that, that food sacrificed to idols doesn't necessarily mean that I'm eating it as sacrificed to idols. It's, it's a whole batch of knowledge. So not everybody understands yet. Some, it says in verse 7, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. So perhaps new believers, uh, they still think that they're, they're idol worshiping. I know that doesn't feel like a problem today, but there are relevant applications to this uh, for us right here. And it certainly would in a paganistic or a, 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 another cultural context in the world. It says, though, in verse number 7, that eat food is really offered to an idol in their conscience. Their internal sense of what's right and wrong is weak, and therefore it's defiled. So we don't want to cause anyone else's conscience to be defiled. We want to operate in considering that, and, and as we're knowing. It says in verse 8, food will not commend us to God. So there's a plug against legalism, right? What, what you do and don't eat is not going to commend you to God. Uh, so food doesn't commend you to God. You're no worse off if you do eat. You're no better off if you don't. Now, obviously, you can't eat it as an act of worship toward a pagan god, Jupiter and Zeus. You can't do that and be in good graces with God, obviously. But what you eat, because you tracked the source perfectly and knew whether or not the intended usage of that original sacrifice had anything to do with a pagan god or not, that, that's a, sort, sort of like not helpful. It doesn't commend you to God. It's not a good exercise. It's what I think is being said here in verses 7 and verse Eight. And so we're talking about consciences and, and them being rightly sharpened based on what we know and thinking through together uh, how we do this. Like, how do we think about it? I, I think one of the places where our consciences are split literally 50-50 in the church in what we think that we know is with regard to the consumption of alcohol. Using Joe Carter's categories and statistics here, I'm going to share a few things. Churches mirror the country we live in at large in this statistic. About half don't drink and about half do. The church, churches pretty much have the same statistics according to research. Now, the tides have shifted in churches from the vestiges of prohibition movement to the expression of the young and restless and reform movement. Carter argues, I think helpfully, thinking about verses like we've read today, that we need to stop thinking only in binary categories. My concern is that you have concern for someone other than yourself and for something other than your own appetite, whether you're a libertine or you're prone toward legalism. Judgmentalism and arrogance neither get at the center of what our passage is talking about today. Subordinate concern for appetite. Subordinate your concern for your appetite to concern for your brothers and sisters. Put your appetite below the love of brother in the pecking order. Then you won't, you, well, you, you won't violate other people's consciences. Accident, well, you might do it accidentally, but you won't do it knowingly at least. Let me try it differently. Martin Dever said it like this. He said that, that your, your conscience cannot make a wrong right. It can't make some... So immorality, for example. Nothing about your conscience and minding your conscience, if it's ill-informed, nothing can ever make immorality a wrong, right? It's just wrong. So it doesn't matter what your conscience tells you. But your conscience, minding your conscience in relation to everyone else, 
could make a right wrong in a situation. So your, minding your conscience can never make a wrong right. It can't make immorality right. But minding your own conscience in relation to everyone else and might actually make a right wrong if you're minding your conscience in a setting and in a manner that truly harms the sanctification of another brother or sister. So do you understand the difference? So we could calibrate what we eat and drink, something that's right to do, and not make it a wrong. But you can't, you can't, your conscience calibration for other people cannot be calibrated in such a way to make immorality. Okay, so when someone comes to you and says, well, God just told me to leave my spouse. No, that, you, that doesn't make a wrong right. Well, God just told me to, to do this or that that's clearly against the teaching of the Word of God with regard to immorality. No, 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 no. But what you eat and drink in terms of food, uh, in this case, alcohol consumption, that could be calibrated in a given situation for the sake of your brothers and sisters. And I think that that's, that's a good application to this text. In, in my personal view, uh, if you'll put your, your, your preferences below consideration of the brothers in Christ, I think, and this kind of spills over into our second point, those whom you're knowing, I believe that you can actually be a part of your brothers and sisters' growth and your mutual growth for the sake of the gospel. So I don't know that I want to think about abstaining and imbibing in these kind of binary terms as we're reading this text today. In my view, there's no place for consumption of alcohol in the church gathering. When members gather for the purpose of worship and study, there's no place for it. There are places, these are places for sober-mindedness for the sake of your prayers, for considering carefully the needs of the formerly addicted and the addiction-prone. These are places where we don't want to flaunt liberty. We're not Roman Catholic in this way. We're not going to have bingo and beer night. However, I will say, I see one place ought to be present, and it's in that little bitty shot glass we call the communion cup. I just can't quite square grape juice with the 4% alcohol by volume that wine had for most of human history and was likely fermented with that wild yeast which delivers alcohol content between 4 and 10% in the wine that was truly wine in Jesus' day at his first miracle as recorded in John chapter 2. It's true that wine today is much stronger, for that matter. But the two-wine theory, as it's called, I don't think it holds weight. Wine had alcohol by volume then, same as now, or it wouldn't have gotten better as Jesus did his miracle. Lawrence Burkholder says it like this, It's fair to say that both abstinence and moderate use were acceptable to Jesus by his behaviors. If these positions were acceptable to Jesus, then they should be acceptable for us too. But while tolerance of differing opinions about alcohol should be our starting point, we have a duty not to end there. We have a duty to consider how our views should be shaped by our cultural context. The harmful use of alcohol is no longer an issue that Christians can ignore. We truly seek the welfare of our cities and the world. When we do, we need to find a way for all believers, whether abstainers or imbibers, to find a way to talk about alcohol in a way that serves our neighbors. The concern is whether or not here that you're an abstainer or an imbiber, it's not that. The concern is whether you understand where and what and how you consume as part of your Christian life. Part of it, not separate from it. Separate from it. God does not leave us alone the other six days of the week from Sunday. Sunday is to frame our thinking for all week, not to be an anomaly in the week. It's the meal that guides us toward the meal all week long. Feeds us, even if we can't remember the sermon or what we read two weeks ago. Jesus wants you to think like your brother 
and learn to serve your brothers and sisters well. Not to offend or scandalize, some of your translations would say, or not to cause them to stumble. You abstainers need to read up too. It's, it's not enough to cling only to tradition and not to the Bible. That's the type of Christianity that Roman Catholics do, tradition only. When the traditions of man contradict biblical teaching, we jettison tradition, don't we? That's what we do over and over again. But we need to do the hard work to see what we do based on the Word of God. Working harder is not necessarily working more biblical. The Bible says here, in this text, in effect, that what we eat and drink will not get us commendation with God. Not flatly. What we eat and drink does get us commendation of God, I believe, when we do it taking into consideration the brothers and sisters. You imbibers need to understand that abstinence doesn't equal weaker brother status automatically. Many who abstain do not seek to bind your conscience. It's just a wiser manner for them to live. That's how they see it. They see the destruction. They read the warnings about alcohol misuse in Scripture. They know that addiction recoveries and there's a need for clear-headed thinking by those in the church and they choose to abstain. This text, nor the one in Romans like it, gives a license to equate the abstainer with the automatic weaker brother. If unloving, it's, it's possible that the imbiber, if acting based on what they think they know, but not in love, like this text says, knowledge puffs up, love's builds up, it's possible that the imbiber could be the weaker brother based on the clear articulation of this text. If it's even discernible who the weaker brother is based on Romans, it's probably not. Labeling abstainer or imbiber as a weaker brother is unhelpful. The question is not how can we not bind consciences. The question is how can we live together with one another in a manner that is considerate, kind, upbuilding spiritually. If that's a conversation you want to, say, want to have, I say have it more, not less. We need to instruct one another's consciences based on the Word of God. We need to know things. And then we need to express matters of conscience, how we live, caring about everybody else and not just ourselves. Caring about everybody else and not just ourselves. The trouble is, I think, it's kind of like an apt metaphor. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said it like this. He said, the trouble is, when you got a guy that's drunk and he's riding a horse down the path, is if he falls off the horse on one side, and you want to help him, you really do, and so you come to his aid and you set him back up on the horse, the trouble is with that drunk, as he's riding down the path, is he tends to fall off the horse on the other side. And he used it as a metaphor to say, when, when we get corrected from an overemphasis over here, probably an unbiblical prohibition-era-induced teetotalerism imposed on everyone's conscience. That's probably the drunk over here. Then we go to the other side and say, well, we've got our freedom. I don't care where you're at on this journey. That is so against these texts. It's so unloving and uncareful. It's not a nuanced consideration. I think to set up on the horse is to have conversations about, have you read them verses in Proverbs that says, wine is a brawler and beer is a mocker? Have you read them? And someone else saying, didn't you know Jesus turned the water into wine at the miracle at Cana? And someone, you see, and I could go, point, I could go back and forth and back and forth. And you know what? It's mature for a congregation to be able to talk about the Bible and then come to some unity, maybe even through disagreeing on third order doctrines and not first and second order. I think it's important. And I'm going to say something else here. So why are you making this an issue? Because it's an issue. That's why I'm making it an issue. Martin Luther also said, 
If you talk about 99 issues that aren't really important in your day and you leave the one off the table that is really an issue, you've pretty much not done your duty as a preacher. Especially when the text is talking about something that's directly related, a matter of conscience. This is a matter of conscience. It is. The trouble is, now we have a cancel culture and groupthink and consumer Christianity where we tend to to flock to a different church when we find an issue of conscience that we don't exactly agree with every other member on. The problem is with that, you never learn how to apply verses like 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. These 24 verses we've read today. Where you bear with and love a brother or sister that isn't calibrated exactly the same as you. When you do life together and you develop consciences by iron sharpening iron in the Word of God, not just to anger one another, but to say, this is where I'm wrestling with the Word. How are you wrestling with the Word? And then, having matured in the Word of God, then to figure out how to live in unity with one another. Maybe you missed something. Or, or did you think you already had it all figured out? You remember? Revert back to rule number one. We don't. We're trying to grow together. And if you take an area of your life and your liberty, and you quarantine it from what the community of faith is talking about based on the Word of God, you limit your conscience significantly to the information it needs to be well-structured for the decisions dynamically that you have to make on a day-by-day and a week-by-week basis. We just have our experiences, our preferences, and our little huddle to fall back on whenever we don't involve at that level. I don't think that that third-order doctrines are worth transferring churches over. I think first- and second-order doctrines are. I define that in other sermons. And there's a really good article online you can read called Theological Triage if you want to think through that. But I, I, I don't think that matters of conscience at the level of imbibing and abstaining is worth dividing a church over. I really don't. Occupational hazard when you preach on tough things, though. Knowledge is not pitted against love in God's economy. This text says that knowledge is important, but love is what builds us up. Not to the neglect of knowledge, but that when knowledges compete, and in a pervasively sinful world we just can't figure out how to square it all, We love one another through it. Arrogance was the problem in Corinth. It really was. We're going to need to tamp down our pride if we're going to make it. I've got a little book I found really helpful. It's a book written by Andrew Nacelli and J.D. Crowley. It's called Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ. I've actually referenced this before in this church. I think it's a really helpful book. But I'm, I'm just going to read just a couple little highlights in it. I don't have time to get very far into it. But I think you'll really appreciate this book if this subject matter interests you. Um, picking up in, in, on page 66, calibrate your conscience by educating it with the truth. That's true. We've already talked about that. Then he says, calibrate your conscience with due process. Take time to let the Word of God inform your conscience. Don't, don't try to make quick, herky-jerky shifts based on the newest thing that you heard. Let the the meals inform your conscience across time so it can be shaped. Consciences might differ, he writes about in in the book. You might need to add to your conscience or subtract. You know, questions people have like, what kind of videos, movies should I watch? Or or what is a dating relationship supposed to look like? Or is is it okay to use certain forms, forms of reproductive technology? Or should I spend this much time or that much time on hobbies or sports or... Or uh, other pursuits, kind of recreational pursuits. You might need to add to your conscience. Nacelli writes, subtracting from your conscience. He says, you know, you might need to subtract to it. Have you thought about questions, or you may have questions of conscience like, should you get a tattoo? Or is it useful to use certain instruments in congregational worship? 
or just reading the highlights here, is it sinful to listen to particular genres of music? Or is it sinful to celebrate a holiday like Halloween? How much mythology is too much mythology, if you know what I mean? Is it sinful to bite your fingernails? Some sensitive consciences really would struggle with that. You may. I'm not making fun of you. I'm saying there's a spectrum here. Is it sinful for guys to wear shorts or jeans? I, I mean, don't roll your eyes. This is a question that at one point was really a conscience question in the church, or maybe a few of you that still have it. And then he offers this long list of other issues you might need to calibrate your conscience on, and he just sort of says, watching Miss Martial Arts for entertainment, how do you treat Sunday after church, uh, listening to secular music, modest dressing, fair trade coffee, uh, the playing of video games. What do you think of a Harry Potter series? Should ladies wear makeup and how much? Homeopathic or medicine or antibiotics? Uh, public school, private school, homeschool? Uh, eating fast foods unhealthy? Christian hip-hop? A church with multiple services or just one service? We've said some things about that. We've worked through that a little bit. Uh, body piercing, cigar smoking. We've already talked about drinking alcohol in moderation. Going into debt, dating versus courting. Uh, when married couples should start trying to have children, how many children they should have uh, once they start having children, Uh, issues of weight and health and so on and so forth. And I'll tell you, I didn't say it, but I I think the COVID-19 crisis is a pretty good case study in matters of conscience, is it not? I mean, my gracious, the differences in the the church bodies and in this church body uh, between how consciences are calibrated. There are a lot of differences in how consciences are calibrated in the church body. There really, really are. One pastor said it like this. He said, one challenge navigating the different responses during this time is that on one hand, you meet people that think that not operating in a certain way threatens their family's existence. And on the other hand, that we're making things worse on people by putting restrictions and everything in between. It's, it's how do you help people work happily together without resenting or dismissing or fracturing the unity of the church by their ardency of the way in which they go about dealing with matters of conscience. And this pastor said it this way. He said, when Satan can't get you to disagree over an issue, he'll get you to disagree on even how to respond to an issue. When the church is under pressure, fractures naturally occur. And shepherds have to be the guardians of people's consciences and make sure that... make sure as guardians of people's consciences, that they make room continually for people who disagree with them on third-order doctrines. Feeling strongly about it, if it's not in Scripture, is something that we should still, we should still consider, but we shouldn't bind other people's consciences. In some way, it's not being a squishy moderate in matters of conscience to try to hoe the middle of the row. I thought it was interesting. And this book on conscience uh, kind of tells us a little bit about that. It's an interesting read. Some consciences are so tender, just so tender, and, and maybe even oversensitized. Douglas Wilson was talking about the Puritans and how Puritan literature is great, but he was critiquing it a little bit in a, in a sermon talk he gave, an interaction he gave, rather, and he said uh, that there are some that are too introspective because their consciences are wound so tightly. And he says they will go through an issue, and this is, I'm just going to read you what he said, and then they run an inventory to see if they're better for it, and I tell them, if it's the very introspective person, no, you're not better for it. The affliction was given to you to get you out of yourself to wake you up, he says. There are other people in the world. If you veer from that lesson during affliction and wonder how can this benefit me, then actually you're turning further inward on yourself, which is a sin. And the passage today talks about how we can sin in these matters. 
Jonathan Edwards and other Puritans answered these questions in a sane and sober way, but there are lots of people who don't answer matters of conscience questions in a sane and sober way. And Wilson says it this way, sort of provocatively, but helpfully. When I've had to counsel morbidly introspective people, they are the hardest people in the world to counsel. When a young man comes in with a less problem, we both know what the problem is. He knows what the problem is, we tackle the problem. And we're talking about biblical counseling, which, by the way, I'd like you to be supportive of the training of biblical counselors. We need to have male and female trained uh, I think, associated, certified biblical counselors in our church. We'll get to that. That's something I hope comes out of, of, of this teaching and others like it today. But here's what Wilson says. This was a little bit of a sidebar. If someone is, is morbidly introspective, oversensitive, not, not the calloused person, the brute conscience, it's my way or the highway, not the meism, but the very sensitive person, he said, this is what he says. very interesting. He said, they think the Holy Spirit is the devil and the devil is the Holy Spirit. And that problem goes so deep, he says, the Holy Spirit is the comforter, and the devil is the accuser in the Bible. The morbidly introspective person thinks the accuser is the Holy Spirit, and they think that the comforter is a falsely lying spirit. Some people, you could preach a thunderous sermon on, say, shoplifting, and the morbidly introspective person that has never stolen anything in their life are the ones that come to you under conviction. I just, you know, says, they'll come to you and say things like, well, I wanted that candy bar once, and I might have taken one given the opportunity. And Wilson says, your problem is not that you're introspective trying to find sin. The problem is that you're looking in the wrong place. Let me take your head from looking at this imaginary theft you've committed or imaginary lies that you've told, and that's not the problem. He says, instead, your problem is that you're absorbed with yourself and arrogant and conceited. You think it's all about that which you're doing. And then you let go of their head, and they're back to confessing phony baloney stuff again. And he says, the overly introspective person is hard to counsel because it's always looking in instead of looking out. It's always considering I've done something else to offend God, and never looking out at the grace that God has done for you and the spirit that he's given to you. And so, what I think helps us here in looking at this is, as believers, you have an obligation if you are one type of person, another type of person, to grow with the body because the Lord Jesus didn't immediately sanctify us from miscalibrated consciences. We, we have to grow together in this. Uh, lest we actually take something that is right and turn it into a sin because we do something without considering the other brothers and sisters in Christ, which is very, very, very important in this entire discussion. Matter of fact, the Bible, or rather, the Bible leads us to form a covenant together as a body, and we have a covenant as a church, which begins like this having been empowered by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized, we do now, in the presence of God and this assembly, most solemnly and joyfully enter into this covenant with one another as one local body of Christ. And then it says things that we will do with one another together bearing with one another because we are in covenant together as a church. And so we have today seen that there are things we need to know from the Word of God to inform our conscience all the days of our life so we don't fall off into the ditch of legalism or libertinism so that we see not just binary choices but the way the Word of God makes us together. So your conscience needs to be calibrated based on what you're knowing. Your conscience needs to be expressed based on who all you're knowing. We read about it in chapter 8, verses 9 through 13, and chapter 10, verses 23 through 33. Whether it was dining in in the temple, 
or, or dining in at someone's home or dining out at the temple between those two texts. What we read about in those texts is that your decision is not based on strictly whether or not that thing is right, but whether or not that right thing could be done wrongly based on working with your brother or sister in their faith. That's what the text is, is talking about. If you go back and read chapter 8, verses 9 to 13, chapter 10, verses 22 through 33, eight times conscience is mentioned. So conscience is the theme of this passage. And when consciences are not just different, but even sometimes damaged, we need biblical counseling in the church to help folks work through things based on the clear teaching of the Word of God. The, the brute conscience doesn't know how to lament. We're getting ready to do a sermon series on lamentations and the subject of the language of lament. I think you should all take that very seriously and listen in starting next Sunday. There'll be a study guide posted online so that you can follow along with learning about lamentation. Some things just aren't fixed through brute strength and, and you know, a kind of stoicism that's meshed with a little bit of Jesus. That doesn't fix it. So some, some of us have these brute consciences and we don't know how to lament and we suffocate our family's energy. And then some of us have such a, such a finely tuned conscience oversensitized, I might say, that we don't know how to live out grace. We don't know that we're not saved because of anything we've done. We're saved because of what Christ has done for us. And so that kind of overly wound person can suffocate the energy in their family too. You can do this or you can do this. But both, and so you wouldn't work through that in the flesh all by yourself. You need the body of Christ to sort of sift these things and think through these things. It's very important. And sometimes your conscience is damaged to the point that you really do need a one-on-one, -on -one, like for a guy, a, a male counselor, for a female, maybe a female counselor, just kind of help you work through biblical counseling in your life. It's important. It's important. I don't have time to read it. I'll just reference it very briefly. Uh, Harish, you won't have time to go to Romans. But let me just say, if you read Romans 13, verses 8 through 14, and Romans 14, I'll say it again, verses 14 through 22, it talks about the this, this same subject matter we're talking about in Corinthians. So it's not a one-off in Corinthians. Romans 13, 8, read six verses. Romans 14, 14, chapter 14, verse 14, and read eight verses. And you'll kind of get at it. You'll kind of get at it. So I've talked to you about the idea of, well, just let your conscience be your guide. Well, that may not be nuanced enough, right? I've talked to you about the idea, well, uh, I'm just going to do whatever I want. Well, that's not expressing matters of conscience in light of the people that you're knowing, is it? But what I haven't talked to you about, and I think it's incumbent that we get to it today, is our third point in the message, is that you do every matter of conscience based on whom you are known by. Look back at your Bible at chapter 8, verse 3. to see where this is coming from. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Known by God. Chapter 8, verse 3. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Do every decision on a matter of conscience based on whom you are known by. We've alluded to it, but it's his gospel that saves you. It's not your works. So you're freed from having to always get it right or be right. The Lord knows that there's due process in this thing. It's not, I ingest a right verse and I all of a sudden change my life pattern. Sometimes I ingest a right verse and it gets meted out over time and our life patterns change because of it. And that is expected. We need to understand the journey that we're on and do all matters of conscience based on whom you are known by. Flip over to chapter 10, verse 31. It bookends the text that I've read today. 
So whether you eat or drink, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all, or do all to the glory of God. What is the reason you do what you do? Whether you eat or you drink, if you do or you don't, in any situation, is it about the fulfilling of your appetite and your preference, or is it about bringing glory to God? Which is it about first? Not bringing glory to God. Now, you can bring glory to God by partaking or not partaking truly, but your preferences should be subordinated to the brothers and sisters that you're growing with in such a way that they're growing together in the admonition of the Lord to, of the Lord to bring glory to His name. That's the point. It even says in verse 32 of chapter 10, Give no offense to the church of God. <laughs> the church is in mind in these matters of conscience. The church is where matters of conscience are meted out. And it says in chapter 10 here, verse 33, it's for the salvation of sinners. What does it say? It says, just as I try to please everyone in everything, I do. Everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be what? Subjunctive, they may be saved. So, your actions need to be calibrated around the good of the body of Christ, but an eye toward missions too, as well. Operation World tells us that we have about 330 million people in this country. And something like 7 out of 10 of them wouldn't even profess to be a Christian. It's probably bordering on 8 or 9 now with current trends. But most recent thing I read, about 7 out of 10 in, right here in this country. We're celebrating Independence Day this weekend. And eight, 7, 8 out of the people that you see on the street don't know Jesus, don't even claim to know Jesus, don't even want to say so. Is that wild or what? Even in the, in the heartland here, I mean... It, it would not be much better if a little better. What if it's six? I mean, over half the people you meet, they don't even have the requisite spirit inside of them to be able to discuss this conference. This whole sermon, they don't even, there's no way. They don't have the spirit. How can they talk about spiritual matters? How can they talk about the usage of gifts of the spirit in the church? How can they understand calibrating a conscience based on hearing from God if they haven't heard from him for conversion? So everything we do is about us developing a voice together that can preach the gospel with unity and maturity to the world. And how we do that if we fissure and fraction over appetites, preferences. I think that's what passages like this are talking about. So that we can grow together and our witness can go forward. So this is not the first category of consciences that may be healthy or not, that might have edges of like bruteness on one side and sensitization on the other side. By the way, I'm not taking shots at either one. That's just the edges of the thing. The whole other category is their conscience hasn't been affected by the born-again nature of the Spirit in them because they've never received the gospel. And we have to have enough fine-tuned muscles in the body of Christ that we can, on the one hand, have these conversations about how we should live and go back to the Word of God and go back and go back, sometimes agreeing to disagree, sometimes changing our behaviors based on matters of conscience, and at the same time know that that is relative shop talk because over here, these people are going to hell without Jesus, and we need to have a unified voice for them. You see? Do you know Him this morning? Because if you've been bored by everything I've said, that, that's, that is absolutely okay if you don't know Jesus. Because the first step of the matter is in Romans, way before we get to all the matters of conscience at the end of the book, the first step is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of your sin is eternal death and separation from God, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If, you'll in, if you will welcome Him into your life, 
What Jesus does is take up residence in your life, fills you with the Holy Spirit, and gives you the requisite tools to be able to understand His Word rightly, interpret it betterly, and discuss matters of conscience. But first step for you is to receive the gospel. Then you can quibble with us about matters of conscience, which I'd be eager to do. Because the Bible didn't have these verses in there for no apparent reason. They're in there for our benefit. I think probably, uh, probably our thinking today and developing one voice for the sake of the gospel is something that's attainable because the Lord wants it for us. Having reconsidered, let conscience be your guide is our defining motto, or I don't really care what anyone else thinks. We've seen today that we need to grow in what we know and love who we're knowing as brothers and sisters so that all we do is to the glory of God. All of it. That is the message today from the text. And I pray that it be so. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.